This is Well Versed with FSG. And today we're proud to welcome Marilyn Robinson, who was awarded a 2012 National Humanities Medal for her writing, which has also earned the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Orange Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle Award, among many others. She is here today to discuss her forthcoming novel, Jack, which returns readers to the beloved world of Gilead. She will be in conversation with Jonathan Galassi, her longtime editor and the president and publisher of Harar, Strauss, and Giroux. Thank you both for being here and take it away. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by saying how excited I was to read Jack and find that I was back in the Gilead world, which is one of the most enveloping and moving fictional universes I've ever had anything to do with. Jack takes place before Gilead and before home. It's a kind of prequel, as someone said, but all the books link together. In fact, I always thought that the books were taking place in the same temporal time frame uh, until I read Jack. Am I right about that, Marilyn? Well, um, I think the feeling of, a, of similar time is maybe partly produced by the fact that the others occur in the town of Gilead, you know? I mean, for example, Lila, the marriage of Lila and so on occurs before Gilead and so on. I, I think that um, Jack feels temporally different because it's set in a city and, and uh, you know, and, and Gilead functions as something that he deeply remembers and considers rather than, you know, the place itself. Where does Jack come from in your mind? I often felt that the characters of Gilead were, you know, had biblical sources in a way that they were impersonations of certain characters in biblical stories. Where did Jack come from? Well, you know, I, I think he's very much indebted, or I'm very much indebted to, to the prodigal son, <laughs> partly because uh, people with his background and his family would be inclined to think in those terms also, as he does also. His father is uh, utterly faithful, like the father in the parable. But the parable ends at a point where the fiction does not end, you know. These questions about love and forgiveness and so on are just so deeply implanted in the Bible and then in a great deal of the language, the music and so on of the culture. I was very struck. I, I told you earlier that I was reading Home, which is Jack in the Gilead universe. And he says, I think hope is the worst thing in the world. It makes a fool of you while it lasts. And then when it's gone, it's like there's nothing left of you at all, except what you can't get rid of. Is that real Jack? Or is that Jack at his, at his most hopeless? I think that, I mean, you know, when we find Jack in Jack, he's not hoping for anything, you know? He's just living day by day and, and staying alive, he thinks, until his father dies before him. And then, you know, then he becomes involved with a woman that he loves, who loves him and so on. And so that he begins projecting forward what it, what it could be to, you know, have life with people that you love, to, to have a son, 
so on. So he loses a certain immunity to circumstance because he is so hard pressed to create circumstances that would actually answer to his hopes, you know. He can't find a place to be at home with his family. Tell us about Della. Where did she come from? Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. You know, these questions, I really don't know in a way where, where I know a character. I, I knew what Della was like, even in the very slight uh, direct attention that I, that I gave to her in home. There are things that I know about her, like background, you know, like to me, she is, she went to Spelman College in Atlanta, you know, which was a, a famous and early uh, college for black women. But that gives that to my mind that establishes things about her confidence and, and you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want to involve myself in another complexity. And so I I didn't uh, name this, the college outright or talk about her time there or anything like that. She's a very remarkable character, very, very moving and brilliant. And she, they're both preacher's children and they give each other a run for their money intellectually and emotionally. That's certainly what I intended. I'm glad to, glad to hear that that's true, that you take it to be true. Jack is a very intellectual character. You know, one of the things that I enjoyed about him is that I can use any allusion, any vocabulary and so on, because he's always hiding out in the library, improving his mind, you know. Um, it gave me a great deal of latitude, which I enjoyed. What is it that made Jack, made life so difficult for Jack? I don't know. I think that, I mean, I think that we have a way of thinking that there, that people are sort of standard issue people to begin with and then they are complicated in one way or another that explains them ever afterward you know but I think some people just find things difficult I mean and it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or well-meaning or you know it's just that a complexity in reality that maybe the rest of us are sort of blind to is, is visible to them, too many possibilities, too much complexity. And they sort of wander through a life that the less sensitive person might not find that challenging, you know? Yes. I mean, his brother, Teddy, for instance, the doctor, is so much less complicated. And even though he's a good man in the world, he's so much less profound than Jack really. Although he does have the good grace to love Jack, he knows Jack, you know, in a way that is just sort of endlessly forgiving and generous. No, I'm not saying that he's not a good man, but he doesn't have the same profound understanding of the complexities and the difficulties of life. True. He, he's a doer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I feel that Jack is someone who almost as if he doesn't have a protective skin that things hit him in ways that others don't let them. Right. Right. He's always aware of his clothing as a sort of protective cover, you know. <laughs> he has a little difficulty sustaining that, you know, but uh, that, that is true. 
he has no carapace or anything. Yes, after all, when Della meets him, he's wearing a suit that makes her think he's a preacher. He, she calls him reverend. Right, become very embarrassed about that. But it's true, clothes, his clothes are a very important part of, of who he is mm-hmm. or who he isn't. Right, you know? right. Yes, his, his idea of sustaining himself has a lot to do with being able to maintain it, you know, what he takes at least to be a kind of an appearance of respectability or something. I don't know what, how he would describe it. One of the things that's most moving and difficult in the book is how Della's family doesn't want her having anything to do with Jack. They're much more settled in the world than he is, and they they really discourage the relationship. Yes, well, even even John Ames says he's not someone you'd want your daughter to marry. No, he's you know he's an eccentric figure of without a without much evidence of being able to cope in the world. And and uh, I mean, Della's family has a lot on on its mind. You know, an intellectual project that. He has no place in, but um, there's also the fact that, you know, in a situation that would require that she be protected in some degree and so on, he's not anyone who looks as if he could fill that role. He's named for his father's friend, but his father's friend is named for his abolitionist grandfather. So he has a kind of religious genealogy that's quite complicated. What do you what do you want to say about that? Well, you know, I think it's true of a tr- tremendous number of people in Western civilization that they have a religious genealogy that is complicated. You know, without people being specifically religiously oriented, they have vocabulary that you know we all do that draws very heavily on that kind of tradition and so on. Um, I'm, I create a sort of an ambiguous landscape, I think, where the question, is Jack or is he not religious, is, is a, a real question. Um, I would tend to say that in, well, I'm, here I'm interpreting my own novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that he is deeply religious, but not in conventional boundaries. And after all, you imply that his son is going to be a preacher himself. So there's a kind of history there of of religious connection. No question about it. I mean, that the families have so much in common in terms of, you know, the whole culture that surrounds the fact of being ministers and so on. Um, and it's, and Jack has a lot of that in common with them also, you know, and and still well that's one of the things that's so moving about the book is the the way the families mirror each other on the white side and the black side they're very very similar yes they are um you know strong strong father figures who who are are intent on their children be thoughtful and well-educated people and so on you know they're very similar Rather Old Testament fathers. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think 
I think Dalton's pretty New Testament. I mean, he certainly is. <laughs> he's, he's willing to amend a great deal of theology in order to be able to embrace Jack with his, you know, his sermons and so on. The characters of Gilead are so etched in my mind that I, uh, they're people, you know, they're, they're, they're part of the world as, as we experience it. the two old men, the two friends who have theological disputes, who are really in each other's families and yet not, and have terrible troubles between each other. And then Lila, who's married to John Ames as an old, when he's an old man, uh, these, these, and Glory, Jack's sister, who has had disappointments of her own. These people are so vivid and uh, not just believable, they're palpable. Well, I have to say the whole impetus behind writing these books has been the fact that uh, that certain characters have emerged in my mind very vividly, you know, um, so that I feel as if it would be, it just seems odd not to give them a book, you know. I don't know. I don't know if we can look forward to another book on the same grounds, but nevertheless, it's true up to this point. Well, I'm not asking. <laughs> Always a tactful man. <laughs> I'll just wait. I'll just wait. Possess my soul in patience. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can always hope though. I think Jack hopes, even though he claims not to. I think he's a deep hoper, actually. Well, he certainly is. Yes, I would say he is. <laughs> he doesn't know how to place hope in himself. So so long as he remains solitary, that you know. But he can't really be solitary because People are always adhering to him. Yes, <laughs> it's true. It's true. He, uh, I mean, where would he be without Teddy, you know? The ever faithful brother who sends him all kind of sweater. <laughs> and Della, too. I mean, she fell in love with him when they were having a, a theological dispute in the, in the cemetery at night. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That's a great cemetery, by the way. <laughs> I know. I, I, part of me wanted to use it as the cover image on the book. It made me want to go to St. Louis, though. A very, a very interesting city, I mean, really. Well, sometimes I think St. Louis is at the red-hot, dead center of American literature, really, when you think about what comes out of St. Louis. Like reading William Carlos Williams, you know, but I read I reread some to get the flavor of his poetry in my mind again. And that strange, strange poetry of the American city, you know, very moving, very remarkable. Of course, he's he's an Easterner with Cuban roots. Yes, know. exactly. Yeah. But when it comes to gigantic bridges and the lives yes. of rivers and so on, it's um, he 
describes lots of things. You describe St. Louis though, as a segregated city, a Southern city really, which it is in a lot of ways. Uh, how did you learn about that? Um, well, you know, uh, one of the things that's interesting about about St. Louis is that it was the Union City through the Civil War. And Missouri in general was a Union state with just a little area they called Little Dixie, mm -hmm. which uh, produced uh, people like Jesse James and so on, who was really a sort of Southern guerrilla. But um, the, then, you know, there was all sorts of movement after the, after the Civil War, all sorts of immigration um, a lot of immigration from Germany, for example, which was already important uh, during the Civil War. Uh, German generals, German-Americans were important in St. Louis and so on. Um, anyway, it has a complicated history that pulls it in all sorts of directions. It was a very, very harshly segregated city. That's my understanding, even by the standards that applied at the time. And they really did take out huge part of the city that was a black neighborhood, you know, and destroy houses, destroy churches. Historically, they destroyed 44 churches, but I, I said 40 because it's more biblical. But um, it, it has a painful history as American cities and other places tend to do, you know. Yeah. And they did that in what context of destroying the neighborhoods? Was that part of the urban renewal or? <laughs> you know, yes, although as far as I can find, they had no specific intentions for what they would do with the area that they destroyed, you know? I mean, that it, it was actually left undeveloped for quite a long, I mean, decades and decades after the neighborhoods that had been there and the churches and all the rest were destroyed. Which so, was when? Let me think. I'm very bad at dates. I would say in the early 20th century. And then things like the St. Louis Arch apparently is built on land that was, you know, emptied in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, you read about what, wasn't it Tulsa that had a very substantial black neighborhood that was, yes. you know, uh, that, Famous riots and destruction of the uh, middle-class black neighborhood. Yeah. yeah, this seemed to be urban and systematic, not so far as I know, not rioting or anything like that, but the effect was exactly the same, uh, that the area was demolished and then went to grass, you know, for a long time. Well, Marilyn, I think we should probably listen to the people who are champing at the bit to ask you questions. So. <laughs> Time to take a few questions. Um, yeah, I'll start pulling them up here. Um, so our first question, you were talking about Jack as both an intellectual and a prodigal son. Could you talk about how those two types overlap? Well, you know, I think that people who, uh, whom we would call intellectual tend to be atypical in many ways, you know. Um, I think that it might even be the kind of religious cast of Jack's intellectualism that uh, complicates the world for him because he doesn't precisely fit into any, you know, any role in life, as it were, you know. I have a lot of sympathy for prodigal sons in general, 
and um, the fact that they might be a little more preoccupied with theology than most just endears them to me. Our next question in Gilead, you wrote that love is holy because it is like grace. The worthiness of its object is never really what matters. Would you say that love can be one way that grace manifests itself in the human realm? And in that sense, is Jack saved despite himself? <laughs> I do think that love and grace are, are simultaneous. Um, I think that when you love someone, you're capable of grace toward them, or you feel grace from them, and it, it is grace, and it actually is, and the loyalty that should be possible is, is grace, you know. I don't think about Jack in terms of saved or not saved. I'm, you know, one of, I, I get teased about being such a Calvinist as I am, but one of the consequences of that is no one is in a position to judge whether anybody else is saved or not. And I'm very happy to be in that condition of doubt. I think, I mean, myself, I'd, you know, if I were God, I certainly enjoy that young man. Yeah, it's a hard question, I think. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. It's who not is one saved? That I consider, yeah, it's not one that I consider to be, you know, embedded in the narrative. Well, I would just say that the fact is love keeps recurring for Jack, especially in the person of Della. And in spite of all, she keeps with a lot of backs and forth, she's there. And that's a kind of grace. Absolutely, it is. Yes, no question. Could you talk about Jack's relationship with the Baptist congregation, and in particular, their minister? Well, you know, he does just sort of happen into that church, you know, not necessarily intending it, just being drawn there by some accidental kindness that he's shown, you know, standing on the sidewalk. Um, he uh, attracted to churches and he's attracted to ministers. Um, he feels as if something important is happening. He feels at home, even if he feels some difficulty being in a home-like environment. He um, he believes, he accepts people who are ministers in the way of his father as being in some exceptional relation to the world, able to comfort, able to bless, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and and whether he would make an, a rational argument for that or not, it's something that he feels so profoundly that it it governs his behavior. He's he he uh, certainly feels that the minister in the Baptist Church is a minister in that sense. You know, and seeks him out. And someone says Jack is my favorite character of the Gilead books, and I was just wondering if you had any literary inspirations in writing him besides the Prodigal Son, of course. I don't think so. I I really I don't come up with anything. You said earlier that. Um, you have characters that just demand to be written about more and more. Mm -hmm. um, so it seems like he's almost wholly original um, and was just demanding for his own story. Seems that way to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you been able to read and write as before during the pandemic? How has it been, I guess, writing and reading during this pandemic time? Well, I was invited to do a lecture for the 700th anniversary of the death of Dante, which I thought was just the most wonderful thing in the world. Apparently, there's going to be a great festival of Dante in in Italy in that year. But then, of course, they have them all the time. 
<laughs> probably so, probably so. But this is the first one I was invited to. You know, I was, I mean, originally I thought, oh, what a wonderful time to be in Italy. But, but then I thought, I'm never, this is going to happen in my living room like everything else does these days. But I'm going to know all about Dante anyway. And so I have been reading, you know, Cavalcanti and Petrarch and everything, you know, to contextualize. And I've been very scrupulous about that. It's basically a very pleasant way to act as if I don't know what's going on in the outside world. <laughs> it is amazing yeah. how, how much you can do from your living room. I think this has made it clear. This is a question from my 25-year-old son, who is a huge fan. Should Gilead be read alongside King Lear, given the final line of Gilead? And if so, is John Ames' period of darkness before he met Lila similar to Lear's period of madness? Wow. Yes. You, you know, there. if you know a Shakespeare play, it's never gone from your mind again. You know what I mean? I, could, I don't think I could write much that didn't, you know, however unconsciously echo something that I read in Shakespeare. But, um, it, you know, that, that uh, line that he's referring to, I'll pray and then I'll sleep. Uh, I, I wanted to say exactly that. <laughs> I wanted to say it with as much brevity as possible. And so I ended up using exactly the same words that Lear uses. Um, and I could have avoided it if I had, if, if those words had not sounded absolutely like the words I wanted. Um, and so, you know, yes and no, I'm indebted. What can I say? And one of the things that's so amazing about Shakespeare is the compression that he's capable of. It says, in, you know, he can say things with a, an efficiency that you simply cannot approach. And no need to gild the lily, right? Right. He's already said it perfectly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, exactly. after all, it's, it's such a commonplace, what he says. So you can't say exactly. it better. Right. Exactly. But what about the there. madness? I mean, there's, you know, there are many, many uh, versions of a sort of... Uh, time in the desert you know which i think of as being more the way that that john Ames would have experienced that as a, an experience that is grueling and purifying and sort of ecstatic all at the same time mm -hmm. and lear sort of becomes a child in his last moments doesn't he yes i, would, I think that's true spice of god and all the rest but um which is not true of Ames. his focuses on his child. His own child. Lear's is also, what can I say? But it's different. How does your Calvinist faith impact your approach to the topics you discuss in your books, if at all? It's kind of hard to know. Um, there are certain things, like, for example, that you can't, no one else is competent to make any judgment about whether someone else is lost or you know, redeemed. Um, that, I think, is an important idea to me that probably influences choices I make without my even being aware that it is influencing them, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I like the, what might be called the worldliness of his theology in the sense that 
what actually happens, what is actually there to be seen and what passes among people and so on. That is really absolutely central. There is no other reality uh, relative to which it is diminished. And, and uh, I think, again, that's very aesthetically fruitful. People like Melville and so on, I think, are clearly proceeding on that assumption. If you notice, you know, in the Father Maple's sermon at the beginning, uh, he's in, utterly inconclusive about whether or not he will have an afterlife and so on, you know, which is consistent with that theology. When you begin a new project, how do you know that it's a novel? It's very hard to say. That is one of the oddest things about my life. I don't, I mean, obviously I have, I wrote a novel and I went in a very long stretch without any fiction at all, you know? And, and uh, then I have a voice in my, in my head, which is one thing, but why does it have the weight? Why does it tell me this is a, this is a novel, this is a long narrative, you know? I don't know. It's almost like a physical sensation of weight. And, um, you know, I'm very glad when it happens. I can't do anything to make it happen. Um, mm -hmm. the, the kind of intentions that other people talk about when they sit down to write a book, I cannot claim. You know, it's as if the impulse is is the book, is the energy behind the book. Strange. I guess to me, the real question about that that I've always been deeply curious about is, you wrote Housekeeping, and you've talked with me about the sources of that in, in metaphor. And But the beginning of Gilead is different, or I think it's different. And I, I'm deeply curious about that, where that, where that voice of, of Boughton came from. I mean, it sounds like I'm being evasive or something, but I actually don't know. I was in a hotel room in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and those words came to my mind, and I could feel implications in many directions from those words. I wrote housekeeping. I, I had a kind of a scholarly interest, you know. I sort of I had a very influential course in college that I was still thinking through, and and um, that made the creation of metaphors and so on extremely interesting to me. Then after I wrote housekeeping. I felt as if I had done that and I had a dread of repeating myself, you know, and did not. <laughs> but um, it's, it, it is funny considering that how important it was in my whole career that I did not want to repeat myself, do another book set in uh, the housekeeping landscape, you know. Here I am plowing back into one landscape again and again. Yes, but this is all one book, you might say. So it has so happened, yeah. And one of the things that I am pleased by is that it seems to me as though Jack was essential and does complete. I do feel as though in many ways I kind of completed Gilead with the addition of that book. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> and why don't we do one last question? Someone asks, if I want to understand Calvin and Calvin's God, as you understand him and his work, where do I start? Institutes is daunting, but is that the place? A difficult theologian who has not 
had he's not been fortunate in all his interpreters, shall we say, you know? Um, and I think it's best to look at Calvin. Um, but um, there are things that you have to remember, like when he uses the word depraved, in the language, in the French and the Latin of his period, that meant having warp in it, like a flawed glass or like a, a, like a text. He was often using the analogy of editing a text. And then that word springs out of context and, be, and takes on a, what seems to be a completely other meaning, you know, which was not implied by him. Also, the word uh, corrupted, the same thing. You know, he's always translating from the original languages of the Bible into Latin and doing that in the awareness of previous existing texts. And so he talks about corrupted texts, you know, as we would do now and so on. Um, there's a way in which um, he has been parodied, you know, that makes him difficult to read and really is worthwhile to check, check words you know, what their 17th century meaning was or what their French meaning is or whatever, you know. And then he uses figures of speech like reasoning a fortiori, where he says, we are so magnificent now, human beings. Think what we were before we fell. Where you take a minimalized version of something and use it to extrapolate something much higher, which is classical literature and so on. And you find that all the time. So he's writing... Uh, in a way that modern people often don't understand. They just see disparagement and don't understand, can't deal with the whole argument and so on. So, so you know, I mean, I read, I was introduced to Calvin by Calvin with a little Herman Melville on the side, a lot mm -hmm. of Herman Melville on the side. <laughs> it's a problem now because uh, between sort of polemical misinterpretations of him and the inevitable difficulties of a text that is centuries old, you know. Well, you're you're his biggest proponent. Yeah. Well, I am, you know. <laughs> My life has taken many interesting turns, but he's very, very major. <laughs> he's a very profound thinker and metaphysician, um, and I'm happy to do him any favor I can. Yes. <laughs> Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Um, so thank you both so much for taking the time today to do this. I know I appreciate it. Um, and I think everyone who is able to, to tune in also appreciates um, you doing this. And we appreciate everyone who took the time to tune in and listen to this and all the booksellers who are going to go out and now sell this book. We so appreciate you. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone. Um, and I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Marilyn. Thanks, Marilyn. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you both. He was walking along almost beside her, two steps behind. She did not look back. She said, I'm not talking to you. I completely understand. If you did completely understand, you wouldn't be following me. He said, when a fellow takes a girl out to dinner, he has to see her home. No, he doesn't have to. Not if she tells him to go away and leave her alone. I can't help the way I was brought up, he said. But he crossed the street and walked along beside her, across the street. When they were a block from where she lived, he came across the street again. He said, I do want to apologize. I don't want to hear it. And don't bother trying to explain. Thank you. I mean, 
I'd rather not try to explain if that's all right. Nothing is all right. All right has no place in this conversation. Still, her voice was soft. I understand, of course, but I can't quite resign myself. She said, I have never been so embarrassed. Never in my life. He said, well, you haven't known me very long. She stopped. Now it's a joke. It's funny. He said, there's a problem I have. The wrong things make me laugh. I think I spoke to you about that. And where did you come from anyway? I was just walking along and there you were behind me. Yes, I'm sorry if I frightened you. 